0: Welcome back to the Dynamic Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host Dan Sonners and today we're going to take a look at multi-channel marketing with a twist because all of the multi-channel marketing methods we're going to talk about today are going to be specifically designed to help boost your direct mail returns. It's new school helping old school and it's next on the Dynamic Nonprofits Podcast. All right, so multi-channel marketing to support direct mail, and we're going to jump right into it. But before I do, I first want to explain why I've taken this approach and focused specifically on supporting direct mail. And the reason for that is because a lot of organizations, as we know, are bandwidth challenged, and it can be difficult to have um, a dedicated acquisition stream in place for every Uh, channel. And that's especially the case as uh, we start to see emerging channels coming onto the scene. And the reality is, is that some channels have established themselves as better prospecting vehicles than others. Um, Now, when you take a complementary approach, like we're talking about here, it becomes a little bit easier to manage. Because The fact is, um, and this may be a little bit of a controversial statement in the modern uh, multi-channel digital age, but for many organizations, direct mail is still the most viable platform and most scalable platform for acquiring large numbers of high value donors. So many organizations already have a direct mail program in place, they have direct mail infrastructure. So when you look at these supporting channels and you use them to boost something that is already established, already in place, A, it's really easy to test and verify if it's going to work. And B, it's also a little bit easier to sustain because you're not having to um, have a full-time program in place on these other channels. You just need to utilize them to coordinate with your direct mail appeals. And with that, let's get into the list. We're going to give you five examples of uh, actionable examples that you can utilize uh, to support your direct mail uh Direct Mail Appeals with other channels. And the first one is a personal favorite of mine. It's Facebook co-targeting. And I guess you could put Instagram in there as well, since Facebook uh, Instagram, of course, is owned by Facebook. Now, um, a quick 101 for those who don't know. Co-targeting essentially means that uh, you're taking a file of names that you're going to mail, you're uploading it to Facebook. Um, it's super easy, super user-friendly to do. Um, Facebook can match on any number of levels based on the information that you have. But certainly if you have names and addresses, um, Facebook will be able to uh, match. Uh, usually the numbers I hear are 40, 50 percent. If you have more information, the matches tend to be a little bit higher. But if you're just talking about a mail file with names and addresses, Um, Facebook can match that. And uh, what will happen is you won't know exactly who will get matched and who will get served. But um, the names that Facebook does match through Facebook's algorithm and real-time bidding um, will serve people ads as they determine um, who are most likely to respond to them and based on the costs. And the best part about this is if you are capable of doing this yourself, um, there's no minimum. Uh, you decide the budget. Now, there always is a question: How much do you need to spend to get a valid test? Um, how much do you need to, say, saturate a hundred thousand names or however large your mailing is? Those are things that can be tested down the line. You know, I certainly wouldn't recommend throwing five hundred bucks at. Um, at at 100,000 names, but I think generally speaking, if you have $2,000 in your budget, maybe 2,500, that should be enough to get you a sufficient read. Now there are other companies that can do this for you, um, but sometimes those companies then will have larger minimums and it becomes a bit of a more costly test. And again, this is super user easy uh user friendly. So if you already have a Facebook page and you have personnel within your organization who are doing this, chances are they'll know how to upload a um uh, a file to Facebook's ad manager and um start serving ads uh to the list. Now, for house file appeals, um I think this is a no-brainer because generally speaking, um certainly um it's been my experience that if you add a touch point to people that are existing donors, um, almost all the time it will produce a lift. And of course, these are names that you already have in house that are already donors to your organization. So that makes sense. Um, it's a little bit different with prospecting. Um, of course, if you're using mailing lists, you need to make sure that you have permission to do this. Um, you know, lists are proprietary assets and list owners have the right to decide whether or not you can use their names for co-targeting. But there are more lists these days, uh, list owners, who are realizing the benefit of this behavior and the fact that um, if you can boost your direct mail returns by co-targeting, it could be more usage for them. So there are more lists that are allowing this. Um, So certainly if you're using a lot of names from cooperative databases or, um, or databases in general, uh, that are not owned uh, by a single organization. Of course, if you're mailing your own non-donors or your lapsed donors, you're free to do that. So depending on what the your mail plan looks like and the types of lists that you're using, this could certainly be viable for prospecting. And the the reason why I wanted to, to talk about Facebook first is because um, even up until a couple years ago, the, the running assumption about Facebook was that it was a bunch of broke college kids that you wouldn't want to reach, and if you did reach, they're not going to donate, so why bother? And that has, uh, I don't know that that was ever really true, but it certainly isn't true now because all the information shows that uh, actually people who are age 55 and older are the fastest growing demographic on Facebook, Um Anecdotally, you know, it's kind of um, believed by a lot of people that um, younger people, Generation Z, uh, younger millennials are migrating over to Instagram. That's really where um, they're passionate about interacting and that's having an impact on the culture. And um, Facebook has kind of become the platform for their parents to go and talk about politics now. I'm half kidding when I say that. But the reality is, is that older consumers um, and even seniors, when we're talking about uh, people that are maybe more consistent with the traditional direct mail demographic, even talking about people who are age you know, 70 and older are getting on Facebook. And not only are they on Facebook, they are the most responsive people on Facebook. So if you're a older millennial like I am, Um, or if you're certainly a younger millennial or Generation Z, um, when you go through your newsfeed on Facebook, if you're still one of those um, younger millennials that's still using Facebook, you probably skim through everything and you decide in a millisecond whether you're going to pay attention to something. And we kind of have it in our head that that's how people use Facebook. And the reality is, is that older users that uh, are um, are not digital natives that didn't essentially grow up with smartphones, um, they don't use social media that way. They go very slow, and I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. I'm just saying that's, that's the way that they interact with these platforms. They go very slow, and they read just about everything, and they internalize messages, including advertisements that younger social media, u- media users may not. So when you think about it this way, and and talking about this from a prospecting standpoint, again I think this is much less um, of an uh, of really a a debate if we're talking about house file because those people are already sold. They understand who what who your organization is. They have no problem with brand ID. If you're talking about a prospect audience, the idea of sending uh, compelling com- content to them on social media. Um, in a way that's relevant to your offer, either in a captivating video that tells a story or some sort of content which is, um, which is relevant to the appeal to kind of prime them and educate them and create a brand awareness before the mail piece arrives. And after the mail piece arrives, because remember, that's the great thing about direct mail is it lingers. Even if you don't look at it right away, it hangs out on your kitchen table for a couple days until you come back to it. So uh, make sure to run those ads afterwards for a sufficient period of time um, before pulling them down. Um, But this to me seems like a very exciting way to kind of prime the audience um, before putting the delivery device in their hands and um, hopefully boosting the response rate. And I think there's a ton of potential for this. There are certainly some nonprofits that are already doing exactly what I'm describing, um, but I'm not seeing a lot of it, especially on the prospecting front. But I think this is something that has a tremendous amount of potential to um, not just boost direct mail returns, which is great for organizations, but also for list owners to create more usage and more revenue for them because their list could become more viable if we're able to see 20, 30% lifts from um, Facebook ads. Um, again, if you're going to do this, you're gonna test it. I think anything is better than nothing. Um, you know, certainly if the best you can do is a static uh, display ad, that just simply brands your organization or has your logo. Anything is worth testing, but certainly the more relevant the content is on social media, I think the better you can expect the impact to be. And um, this is something that has a lot of promise and and could be scalable because if it works, then you can just time it out so that you know you have to create a piece of social media content um, every time you have a direct mail campaign going out. All right, so we're going to go from something that's very user-friendly with Facebook co-targeting to something that's a little bit more complicated, but is equally scalable, and that is direct mail retargeting. Now, this is also sometimes known as programmatic direct mail. That's a term that was coined by Pebble Post in 2014, but they're pretty much the same thing. And basically... Um, If you don't know, what direct mail retargeting is, is there's usually a company that will um, add software to your website and will look at the anonymized web traffic that comes to you and will match through the IP information to a postal address. And usually there's some sort of um, algorithm or formula that they use to model that traffic and determine the people who are most likely to convert so that then you can either send them a quick postcard or put them into your uh, conventional mail program. Now, this has actually been around for quite some time on the commercial side and usually how it works there is if you go to a retail site, let's say you go to um, Kohl's and you you look at, Running shoes. That within 24 hours there'll be a mail piece that's kicked out to you um, with running sneakers with the idea that uh, they need to get that mail piece into your hand as soon as possible after you were viewing it on the website, and um, that ha- that concept has not really translated to nonprofit fundraising yet but it just needs to be modified a little bit um, because the, 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 the behavior that someone demonstrates when they're on a commercial website and they're thinking about making a purchase is much different than somebody who's on a nonprofit website and is looking at, to make a donation. Um, for instance, someone that's spending a lot of time on, um, on, Kohl's, on Kohl's website looking at sneakers very likely is thinking about making a purchase of sneakers, but there's a lot of reasons that you could view a lot of pages on a nonprofit website, and um and not make a donation. So there's a different element there, and um but the the concept has a lot of promise because if you start from the central premise that if you're like most organizations, ninety nine percent of people that go to your website will not make a donation. So we all know that there is lost opportunity in people that are going to the site. The question is, How can you either model that traffic or customize offers in a way where you're sending people something meaningful that they're going to convert with? And there's a lot of different ways to get into the weeds with this. Um, If you want to customize based on downloadable content, you know, this is where something like content marketing comes in handy, because if you have the ability to identify people that are going and reading blogs on your site. You could send them mail pieces on issues that are pertinent to those blogs. Uh, Same thing with podcasts, certainly if they're downloading eBooks. You know, those are the kinds of people that are um, maybe engaging in behavior that is conducive to direct mail, where it would make sense to send them a mail piece that they might take the time to consider. Um, I certainly don't think that the straight um, Recency approach of uh, necessarily sending mail to everyone that goes to your website or that goes to your donation page is going to work on the nonprofit side, but the technology exists, and um, if you have the ability to um, to to direct mail to these people in a thoughtful, customized way that's as personal as possible to the experience that they are um, that they're they're producing for themselves on your website um, it's certainly something that uh, I think has promise and if you're a, a high volume website or even a website that is getting a million unique views a month um. There's a lot of people that are going there that are leaving without making a donation. Who might consider it if you were willing to approach them. So there's a lot of companies in this that are in this space. Um, do your homework. There's a lot of different ways um to go about the um. The postal address matching that I was talking about earlier, some companies use an opt-in database, some companies don't use an opt-in database. There's a little bit of a gray area there, um, maybe even a little bit of a disagreement in terms of privacy considerations. Privacy considerations are a major factor when you're talking about nonprofit organizations. Um, any reputable company that is in this space will ask you uh, to review your privacy policy to make sure that you're able to um, that you're able to match postal addresses in a way that's compliant with uh, your disclosures to your your uh, your donors and to people that are coming to your sites. Um, so there's there's a lot of layers there. Um, like I said, this is not something that is taken off in the nonprofit space, but it's out there and it's worth being aware of because especially if you're a high traffic site, Um, there's a lot of potential to capture people that you otherwise would not be able to get to donate. All right, so we've come to example number three for multi-channel marketing um, examples that you can use to support your direct mail. And number three is the text message. Now, texting is probably something that you do dozens of times a day if you're like most Americans. And uh, texting has really become instrumental uh, as a way for us to communicate with each other. And it makes a lot of sense if you think about it. You know, if you think about it, if you need to ask somebody for a quick favor or get some information, if you call them up on the phone, uh, there are things that can get lost in translation. Maybe they misunderstand exactly what you're asking, or you might get sidetracked and get into a whole nother discussion altogether. So it's not necessarily a, an efficient way to, um, to to get information or to make a request. Of somebody. Um, texting, on the other hand, there's um there's it there's much less room for there to be a misunderstanding. And um it's much more direct, it's literally right in someone's hands. We're all attached to our phones, even those of us that don't like to admit it. We all usually have our phone right next to us, so you get a text, you get it right away, and um you you understand exactly what the person the other is asking. So because this has become so instrumental to our way of communicating with each other, it only makes sense that um, advertisers and nonprofit organizations would start using text messages as a way to communicate with their donors and buyers. Um, This is pretty big now on the the for-profit side. I'm sure there are stores that you shop at where you have coupons or special offers that you get texted to you. And uh, texting um, for donations is not exactly a new thing. Um, I don't remember exactly when it started, but I do recall um, living in New Jersey after Superstorm Sandy, I do recall the text messages going out um, uh, uh, to the uh, American Red Cross uh, to make a donation. And, And that was the first big event where I remember that there was... Um, where they seemed like there was a widespread use of text messaging to make donations. Uh, There may have been um, a natural disaster before then. But um, organizations like the American Red Cross, uh, international relief groups, um, groups that are responding to natural disasters um, overseas, things like that. um, I've seen... um, uh, re- re- organizations that work with refugees that are responding to something breaking in the news where there might be a a, uh, a humanitarian crisis uh, where they need to respond quickly, um, using text messages as a way to raise money quickly. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. And um, certainly, those kinds of organizations, if they have numbers for their donors, are using those phone numbers as a way to text and interact and uh, solicit donations in those emergency situations. Um, But for most organizations, actually, fundraising through text messaging is not quite as practical, because unless it's a a real hot-button issue or something that's on the top of everyone's mind or is really in the news or an emergency situation, For most organizations there still is an art to crafting a message and explaining why the donation is necessary and what the impact is going to have and that is really hard to express um, in in a few characters in a uh, a text message. So uh, where I see texting really taking off and kind of going to the next level in the nonprofit world is using text as a way to support direct mail. This is a really good instance where, even if you're not quite at the point yet of using text messaging, it's a really good idea to start giving your donors an option of supplying their phone number for a text in program, uh, for an opt in program for text messages um, when they respond via other mediums, because you can never have too much information. And I remember the early days of email fundraising. Um, when we were starting to find out that just physically having the email address of a donor, even if you didn't have a formal program, it had a value to it, because you were sending them some information, or even if you were sending them nothing, these are people that are volunteering more information to you, so there's uh, an inherent value in that, uh, just a, a different level of interest or commitment on the part of the donor. So I don't think it's ever too early to start getting this information, and once you have phone numbers, then you can incorporate um, texting as a touch point on your direct mail appeals, and it could be something as simple as sending them a heads up, hey, we're sending you an annual renewal, uh, keep an eye out for it this week, and then afterwards using it, uh, sending them a text message and saying, hey, just want to make sure that you got your, uh, your renewal package, um, do you have any questions? By the way, a really, really good idea is um, to have somebody or have something in place where you can actually respond because um, people will text you back questions. And um, the last thing you want to do is be in a position where you don't respond to them. So on a very basic level, if you have those types of uh, – if you you have phone numbers – um, you can start testing using text messages as a primer, as, as a follow-up, kind of the same way we we're talking about with Facebook, but this isn't content. This is just a, a person-to-person text message, uh, giving them a heads-up and a follow-up after the mail piece arrive. Now, prospecting is a little bit um, of a different animal, but there are now companies that are coming into the space that um, have... Um, compliant ways to match phone numbers, um, the same way companies have been doing for years uh, for telemarketing appeals, and um, have compliant ways to then send prospects text messages who have not opted in to receive messages from your organization. Uh, I think there's some quirks in the law where if it's physically sent by a person, um, that's okay. and if it's sent by machine or it's automated, then you, you need that physical opt-in. Now, the laws could very much change, to, um, uh, change and evolve as things go on. Um, but right now, there are compliant ways to send text messages to prospects. And it is something that could be tested. But on a very basic level... Uh, start collecting phone numbers from your donors um, on your mail pieces when they send in their replies. Um, start getting them to opt in. And even if you don't have a formal texting program, um, at least start getting those numbers so that you can test this out as an added touch point on your house file appeals and uh, see if it makes a difference, giving them a heads up that uh, mail piece is on the way. So we've made it to number four on our list, and number four is an oldie but a goodie. I'm talking about good old fashioned email. Now just about every organization on the planet is using email in some capacity at this point, but many are not using email to its full advantage. And um, a really simple way to use it to support direct mail, is um, most organizations um, have email addresses uh, for their donors at this point? Um, maybe if they come, if they're coming in through direct mail, if they write in their email address, um, or if they certainly, if they've made a donation um, digitally, they probably supplied their email address and opted in. But if you have an email address and a postal address, it's very simple to test sending um, an email as a primer for a direct mail uh, appeal. So if you have a capital campaign coming, you could send an email um, letting the donor know that um, that the appeal is on its way and maybe provide some complimentary information. Um, and you can also do a follow up again, same way we were just talking about with text messages. Um, but with email, There's a little bit more room I think to experiment with um, giving an additional ask because uh, we're used to getting asked for donations in email. Obviously email fundraising is a very viable and and proven channel for acquiring donors. So uh, I would recommend doing a test, um, testing priming the donor and following up and trying to use it uh, to boost direct mail, um, which may in itself work, Or also testing that against um, sending an email appeal, which may be modeled off of that mail piece. So kind of using the theory of uh, repetition, uh, maybe somebody got the mail piece, read through it, decided for whatever reason they weren't going to donate, became distracted. Now they see almost an identical offer in their inbox. and um, they decide to respond to that. So testing that against uh, the prime and follow-up technique and see which one works. Um, Sending email is very cheap, and it's super easy to test and to get valid reads on this stuff. And it could be Uh, Something that is literally already in your arsenal, you don't have to go out and acquire any new information like we were just talking about with text messages if you need phone numbers. So this might be something that's at your fingertips already that you um, you can start deploying immediately. So we've made it to our fifth and final example of uh, multi-channel marketing which you can use to support your direct mail fundraising. Um, And before I get to number five though I do want to add touching on the email example number four. um, There's no reason why some of these examples cannot be tested in combination. So if you test uh, Facebook co-targeting Um, there's no reason you can't test adding an email to the mix. Likewise, I did not make this one of uh, the five examples, but um, you certainly could test adding programmatic display. I don't think that's necessarily... Um, always going to be appropriate or effective. But I think if it's something like an annual renewal or um, a money bomb or a capital campaign or something very specific, if you want to reinforce that through uh, digital display, um, I, I, I think these things all make sense to test. And as far as how many are are too many touch points. I think you test touch points until you find that they are stopped being effective because who knows, you may find that the best way to solicit your donors for for appeals is to send them direct mail which is layered with Facebook, which is layered with um, a complimentary email appeal, um, which is layered with programmatic display. You may find that each one of these touch points adds a lift to your direct mail so you start with uh, testing one and you just keep layering them on top of each other um, until you find that um, you're not seeing any benefit. But number five is uh, a bit of an out of the box example, not something I'm seeing um, a lot of organizations utilizing but I think it could be a bit of a lost opportunity and it's um, online lead generation to direct mail. Now, a lot of organizations, uh, especially if you're in the advocacy arena, use things like uh, petitions, or they may ask you to supply information um, to download an ebook, or some sort of other uh, free, uh, free electronic premium. And it, it amazes me that Uh, Most organizations are still asking for just the email address, some are asking for zip code. And I think a really easy test is to add the postal fields. Now, I know what you're thinking because the immediate reaction to that is the more fields you ask for, uh, the lower the response rates. And that's true, but if you think about it this way, the people who do respond that are filling in their postal information, A, they're kind of implicitly saying, um, send me something. I'm interested to get more information from your organization. But the fact is they're overcoming that friction of that additional field. So I think that's a slightly more qualified prospect than someone that's just putting in an email address or an email address and um, uh, and a zip code. So I think if you have an online lead generation program, it's really easy to A-B test, um, not just to test what is the impact of adding these additional fields? Who knows, you may find that you don't lose as many people as you think. And if you're only losing 10 or 20% of people because you're adding um, a a postal address field, um, those people that you're losing probably were not great prospects to begin with. So you don't know until you test. Um, But then taking those postal names uh, or taking those, those online names that supply their postal information and putting them right in the mail, sending them a prospecting piece, and seeing what happens—it seems counterintuitive. I know because um, you know the, the the mindset is still very much there throughout the nonprofit space that these are people that are interacting online and they're asking to be communicated with online. Why would you send them mail? But. I think sometimes we get stuck in uh, our thought silos about what we assume and we don't stop to uh, really think outside of the box and think about even our own behavior as consumers. Because uh, you know, if you think about how you interact with your favorite brands, sometimes it may be online, sometimes you may go to the store, sometimes you may respond through the mail. Uh, most people at this point, at this juncture, are not strictly interacting with brands through one channel or another. So just because somebody um, just because somebody fills out an online petition, I would not assume that that means that they do not want to receive mail, especially if they're providing their postal address. The other assumption is that the people that are online might be too young. They might not fit into the typical direct mail demographic. I would at least I would at least acquire some names and then um, maybe pay a little bit extra to get some demographic information on those people that are supplying their information because you may be surprised there too, just how similar the demographics are between on and offline. But certainly, if this is something which tests itself out, if you have a large scale petition program, um, if you're acquiring information when people come to your website, um, this could be an opportunity And in many cases, it could be an opportunity um, to not uh, not just reach a scalable number of prospects, but prospects which may not exist in the traditional direct mail donor universe, but are still responsive to direct mail from your organization. All right, so we've made it through our list of five multi channel marketing examples to help support your nonprofit organization's direct mail. And now we've made it to my favorite part of the program, which I like to call work life balance, where I give you a work tip and then uh, a life tip from something that uh, I'm enjoying either a book or movie or sports or something to get away because, um, as I like to say, Both parts of the work life balance are equally important, and we need to make sure to pay attention to them both. But first, the work tip read your social media comments. Uh, This is so important, and I wonder how many organizations do it. And I say that because as I look through um, nonprofits' Facebook pages, I don't see a lot of organizations writing back to comments, good, bad, or otherwise. Um, and that makes me question um, if they're not writing back, are they actually reading them? Now, it is super important to write back and interact and to make sure that your donors feel heard, um, especially if it's a negative comment. But uh, of course, the positive ones as well. Um, you, you don't want your donors um, or even people that are considering becoming donors think, feeling like they're uh, yelling into a vacuum. But um, even just reading your social media comments can have a tremendous amount of value. So um, if you're reading your comments and there's certain um, motivating factors or things that people keep coming back to and talking about and praising your organization, That's a really good indicator that these are things that get people excited about your organization's work. And then it's worth taking a look at your mail pieces and your email appeals and your ads on social media. Are your fundraising devices emphasizing these things which um, people are volunteering? You're not soliciting that information. People are volunteering that this is something that excites them about your organization. Likewise, there could be criticisms in there. Um, there could be pain points, there could be friction that people are, uh, are volunteering that um, might represent reasons why people are not donating. And that's worth looking at your appeals as well. If there's a known reason, um, you know, it could be something as we need to know more. What are you going to do with the money? Um, or it could be a much larger issue. Uh, it might be worth look addressing whether or not that stuff should be addressed in your fundraising appeals as a possible way to overcome friction with the donors. But regardless, either way, spend a day reading your social media comments. I think everyone who works in development in any channel should do this. And uh, you will be surprised at what people volunteer and what they come up with. And I think this is a much more uh raw and authentic way to get donor feedback than surveys. Because the issues with surveys is people do respond and they say what, you th- what they think you want to hear and they may not always be completely honest. Uh, when people are on social media and they're leaving comments for good, bad, or otherwise, they are being honest and they're being authentic and they're telling you exactly how they feel. Now, the life tip. Um, unless you've been living under a rock the last three weeks, you probably know who James Holtzauer is. He is the guy who is tearing up the record books on Jeopardy. And as of the time I'm recording this, I believe he's won 19 games in a row and just over $1.5 million. Uh, He's a professional sports gambler who prepared five years um, to go on Jeopardy. And, what he's done is really is really so remarkable, and, and I've always watched Jeopardy on and off, but I've been absolutely captivated by what this guy has been doing and the amount of money he's been winning. Um, I believe prior to his run, the record winning uh, on Jeopardy was $77,000, and I think he's beaten that um, almost, um, almost double-digit times, and uh, his personal high at this point might be around $110,000 and And the way he 's been able to do this, it seems really basic, but nobody has really mastered what i 'm about to tell you before Holt's hour's run is um he 's figured out a way to maximize winnings, and basically what he does is besides the fact that he seems to have a, a photographic knowledge um, and uh, for a photographic memory, and he clearly has done all of his homework, and he very rarely rings in and gets a question wrong. He goes for the high dollar questions in the early rounds. So traditionally, uh, people will start going across categories in Jeopardy, and they will go from the lower dollar value, which are the easier questions, to the highest. He goes across all the categories uh, starting at the beginning of the game, all the $1,000 questions, builds up a big lead, um, and then he'll do that again in Double Jeopardy as well. But where he's really uh, kind of figured out a, a quirk in this game is the way he utilizes his double jeopardies. And what he does is he bets extremely aggressively because he figured out over the time he was studying the show that um, double jeopardy or, or, or uh, contestants that pick a double jeopardy, they get the answer right about 70% of the time. But most people are very conservative with their double jeopardy bets. Uh, it's basically the same reason why NFL coaches uh, punt on fourth and one when the, the data says that they should never do that. Uh, they do because we're naturally risk adverse as human beings. So when people get a double jeopardy opportunity, they tend to be very conservative in their wagers, uh, when in reality, you only have three chances during a game um, to win more than $2,000 on any one question. So frequently, he'll even uh, do a true da- uh, daily double and bet his entire uh, winnings. And And by doing that, and the fact that he... I think he's only missed one double Jeopardy question during his run. Um, By doing that, he puts the game out of reach when he gets to final Jeopardy. And um, then he's basically able to bet with free money. Um, I think he's only missed one final Jeopardy question during his run. So he usually gets that right. So he's able to pad his winnings in a way that's completely risk-free because he's already won the game. So uh, what I take away from that is even something that has been around as long as Jeopardy, which is in its 35th year, um, can be optimized through data. And that's something we should always remember as marketers that no matter how long we've had a control package, no matter how long uh, an organization has been uh, been around, uh, the job is never really done, it's never perfect. There's always ways to improve and to look for things, uh, look for ways to uh, raise money in a more efficient way. And um, if you look hard enough, the data is there. And um, if you take that type of approach to your fundraising, you'll always be improving and you'll always be innovating, because you'll know that there's, um, there's always a way to improve it. And um, I think that Seeing somebody discover a, a new way to master the game of Jeopardy is um, it is really just representative of that that uh, the possibilities are endless when you look at data. And of course, as we talk about Jeopardy, we all wish um, uh, Alex Trebek, who is um, just uh, just a tremendous TV icon, one of the great game show hosts of all time, uh, we certainly all wish him well. Mm-hmm. And that's a wrap. We've come to the end of episode number two of the Dynamic Nonprofits Podcast. I hope you're getting value out of this because I'm having a great time doing it. This is something that I've wanted to... Put out there for uh, quite some time. So I hope it's providing value. And um, this is supposed to be a conversation first and foremost. So if you have any feedback on the show, or there's anything else you want to talk about, the best place to do that with me is on LinkedIn. I am Dan Sonners. Or uh, you could also look me up on Twitter, where uh, my handle is MKTG Sonners, that's at MKTG Sonners, or if you like good old fashioned email, you could always email the show dynamic nonprofits at gmail.com. But uh, until next time, this is Dan Sonners saying good night from New Jersey, where Taylor Ham was invented in 1856. That's Taylor Ham, not pork roll. <music>